to the book of Acts chapter 16. I kind of, as I go through the early service, I always feel rushed for some reason. And uh, I say I always feel like smoking the bandit. I got a long ways to go and a short time to get there. But uh, I don't feel that way in the second service. <laughs> so we may be here. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> I'm aggravating you. But it is good to be here this morning. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 16. I'm going to begin at verse 11. I'm going to go to verse 31. If you will follow along with me. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days, and on the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us and brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks." But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of prison, the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you again this day thanking you most of all for the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Father, I ask that he have preeminence in this place throughout the remainder of this day and our time together. Father, I ask you to sanctify each and every believer that's gathered here to worship and song and word. And Father, if there be one among us that doesn't know you, I ask that your spirit work mightily among us to the point of bringing them to a place of repentance and faith in your son, Jesus. And we ask these things in Christ's name, and for his sake we pray, amen. I'm going to ask you as you're seated, uh, keep your Bibles open, if you will, to Acts chapter 16, and I'd also ask you 
to put a marker or something of that nature at Philippians chapter 1. I am not going to do what I would call a faithful exposition of what I have read this morning. But nevertheless, there's a few things that I would like to point out from the text. And so within that being said, they don't, may not have this on the screen. And it would be my fault if they do not, nor all the scripture that I'll go through this morning. But the three things that I want to point out, and you may want to write them down, I'd like to point out of the church of Philippi, it's dawning. I'd like to point out its diversity. And I'd also like to point out its unity. So if you're writing it down, we're looking at the church of Philippi. It's dawning. It's diversity and it's unity. So we'd ask ourselves a question this morning, how in the world did the church of Philippi come into existence? How did it begin? What is its dawning? Well, one thing that we know for sure is it did not come into existence on its own or in and of itself. It didn't come from nothing. As a matter of fact, nothing ever comes from nothing. A million years from nothing, you have nothing. Everything comes from something. That's real profound, right? Now, with that being said, it's not profound. It's simplistic. It's the reality that we all see around us. But at the same time, universities cannot agree upon this matter. Universities historically has been the very place where people have looked out and seen diversity in the world, diversity in people, and tried to find a commonality or a unity in the midst of diversity. Therefore, we have a university. But nevertheless, when we look at this church here, we see it has a beginning the same as all churches have their beginning and we begin to see how Jesus teaches us that the beginning of the church is established. And we find this in Matthew chapter 16. If you'll remember with me, when Jesus asked the disciples a question, he says one day to them, he says, Who do men say that the Son of Man am? Who do men say that I am? And then they begin to answer. Some say, you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Uh, some say Jeremiah. Some say you are the prophet. And then Jesus asked, but who do you say that I am? And then the disciple with a foot-shaped mouth speaks up. And he says, for you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what Peter said to Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This statement that he made is the confession that the church is founded on. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now listen to Jesus' response to Peter. He says, I say unto you, Simon Berjonas, he called him Simon, not Peter, but it's Simon. And Simon means a small sapling, easily blown around by the wind. That's a, that's a little tree. Simon, Berjona, son of Jonah, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but only my Father which is in heaven. Peter gave the great confession of our faith that the church is founded on. But Jesus gave the reason why, and that reason of that confession was a revelation that came directly from God. It didn't come from Peter's intellect. It didn't come from the wisdom of men or the disciples all getting together and saying, I think this is what we ought to answer. It didn't come from some brilliance found in this group. This confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't give this to you. But only my Father, which is in heaven. The great confession of the church comes from a great revelation that comes from God. And then Jesus says, For thou art Peter, which means a small stone. 
And then Jesus says to him, Upon this rock, not talking about Peter. Peter's not the beginning of the papacy or a succession of popes throughout the generation. He's not the head of the church that's being passed on. Jesus is saying, upon this rock, myself, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the great certainty that Christ is and will build his church and that it will succeed in its mission globally across the world. He said, I will build my church. And then he says, the gates of hell. Gates are not offensive weapons. They're used for defense. He says, the gates of hell, in other words, cannot hold my church back. I'm going to build it. I'm going to expand it. It's going to do what I've purposed for it to do. We see the great confession, the great revelation. But then if we were to go and do a little study on Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, and I'd encourage anyone and everyone to go back and listen to the messages that Jimmy preached from Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. But we could see another summation of the church. I'm going to sum it up like this. The Father planned the church. The Son purchases the church. And the Spirit produces the church through the sufficiency of the proclamation of the Word and through His power. Let me say it again. The Father planned the church. The Son purchases the church. And the Spirit produces the church through the proclamation of the sufficient Word through His power. I can tell you this this morning, that the church at Philippi is no exception to anything I just said. We see Paul as a preacher, as a pastor, as a missionary, as a church planner, and he is going in to Macedonia, and particularly this chief city of Philippi. And he's preaching the gospel everywhere he goes. And the first convert that we see in Philippi is a lady by the name of Lydia. I want you to look with me, Acts chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. And the text reads, And on the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us, and was a, she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Did you hear some things here? He said that she heard us. She heard us. How shall they believe on whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear unless there be a preacher. Here's Paul, and he's proclaiming the gospel to the group of women, and here's Lydia, and she heard Paul, not just with physical ears, but the scripture reads, whose heart the Lord opened. The Lord opened her heart. She's got ears to hear, eyes to see, a mind that can contemplate what's being said, and she receives the gospel of Jesus Christ. She's saved, and then ultimately her family, they're all baptized. This is the beginning, the dawning of the first convert, the church at Philippi. I want us to look past the dawning of the church at Philippi this morning, and I want us to begin to see the diversity of the church at Philippi. We've talked about Lydia to a small degree, but she is the first convert in Philippi. And we see from the text that she's a very religious lady. The scripture reads here that she's a, she worships God or that she worshiped God. If you look it up in the Greek, it literally reads a worshiper of God. And there are some translations that read a worshiper of God. What's really interesting is when somebody was a Jewish proselyte that had 
been a Gentile converted into Judaism, the Jews called them a worshiper of God. She is a Jewish proselyte converted into Judaism. And it's also very apparent that she is a lady of prayer. She doesn't know the Lord Jesus, but nevertheless, she is in the Jewish religion. She's a lady of prayer. We know that because the scripture says that there is a group of women that meet every Sabbath day, and Lydia is one of those women. She's a religious lady, devoted to prayer, and she's also from Thyatira, which is in Asia. Now, we don't know exactly why Lydia is in Philippi, but it is most likely because of her business. The scripture reads that she is a seller of purple. And this purple came from a dye that was extracted from a very rare type of shellfish. I'll try to say shellfish three times fast. I barely got it out one time. But nevertheless, they extract this dye from this shellfish, and, and as they take it, they work this dye into the garments, and they're a beautiful purple garment. Now, what I can tell you is that if you were a seller of purple in that Roman Empire, you're living pretty well. You're doing pretty good for yourself. This is a very lucrative business. And the reason is, the people that wore purple, they were magistrates. They were dignitaries. They were people in authority, people in power. Kings, rulers. Caesar would have wore a purple garment. And of this selling of purple... She would have been very wealthy. And the scripture also reads that she has persuaded Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke would have been with them, considering he is the historical author of, Luke, or of Acts. She's invited and persuaded four men to come along with her family to stay in her house. Her house is large enough for her, her family, and four guests. Now, I'm going to tell you something. That would be a pretty large house today. But in their time, at the turn of the century, this is an extremely large house. Enough for this many guests. The second convert we begin to see in Acts chapter 16 is this young lady, a damsel possessed by a demon. There's not a whole lot said about her. We do know that she was possessed by a demon. And one thing that most commentators that I read, they make the case that when she was set free from the demonic influence, that that deliverance is synopsis with her salvation and her being set free from the bondage of sin. Another thing we know of this young lady is we know that she is a slave. One thing that we know based on history is that a Roman citizen could not enslave another Roman citizen. This young lady was probably a descendant of several generations that tragic circumstances happened to around 42 B.C. Those tragic circumstances would have been the expansion of the Roman Empire of what historically has been called the Battle of Philippi, of which I'm going to talk a little bit more later on. Rome ultimately had a civil war after Julius Caesar's assassination. And in this civil war, the Greeks took one side and the side that the Greeks took lost that war. Rome continued their expansion, fully took over the city of Philippi. And within this, this young lady is probably a second to third generation descendant from Greeks that lived in Philippi. 
From 42 B.C. up until the turn of the century, the time that Paul is there witnessing to them. Not only this, but as a slave, in contrast to Lydia, this little slave girl, this young lady, she did not own a business like Lydia. As a matter of fact, she didn't own her own home. She had no possessions. She had no rights. She had no liberty. The money that she worked for and earned went directly to her slave owner, her masters. At the end of the day, this young lady in this culture did not even own her own self. Then we see another individual the third convert from Philippi, which is the Philippian jailer. I think that in Acts chapter 16, which I did not read the beginning of, the first 10 verses, it starts out with Paul going a particular way on his missionary journey, and then he sees a vision. You remember this story? Paul sees a vision, and in this vision... It's where we get what we call the Macedonia call. In this vision, there's a man, and he's crying out in the vision, come help us. And Paul begins his way, based upon the vision, to Macedonia. Remember that Philippi is the chief city in Macedonia. Up to this point, we have a female convert, Another young female convert. And now the Philippian jailer is the first male convert. Now just me, my opinion, I believe that this Philippian jailer was probably going through some extremely difficult time. One reason I would say that is because he had no sound reasoning at this point or knowledge or facts that anybody had fled the jail. And just because the doors had opened, he assumed that they had all fled and he's already ready to kill himself. In my opinion, most likely the Philippian jailer had been crying out to a God that he did not know. The Lord allowed Paul to see in a vision the Philippian jailer crying out, come help us, plural. And by the time it's all said and done, Paul and Silas find themselves in jail. God works a great miracle while they're there. The jailer runs out, says, what must I do to be saved? And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your whole household. Third convert, Philippian jailer. Understand this. Most Jailers were semi-retired Roman soldiers. If you were a jailer in a providence of Rome, you were most likely a semi-retired Roman soldier. I say all that to say this. Here's your first three converts in the church at Philippi. You've got an Asian, a Greek, and a Roman. Now I know this sounds like the beginning of a dry bar humor joke. Three guys walk into a, a bar. One a Greek. One a Roman. One an Asian. Can't you hear it now? I'd like to say that I had some funny joke to tell you, but I don't. But you can't make this stuff up. Let me ask you something. Who's building the church? The Lord's building the church. Jesus is the one who said, I will build my church. He's building his church. And what do we see? We see diversity on an unbelievable magnitude with the first three converts in Philippi. Now, if you want to add just a little bit more to it, think this through for a second. Paul is the missionary 
church planner, gospel preacher, goes into Philippi, and he is a Jew. He's a Jew's Jew. And not only this, he would have about the equivalent of a double Ph.D. in Jewish history and Jewish law. Not only this, you've got Luke, and he is a Jew, and he's a doctor. And then you've got Timothy to top it all off. Timothy's mama is a Jew, and his daddy is a Greek. Here's you some folks that are making up the first church at Philippi. When you think about somebody that's a half-breed Jew and Greek, there's a great deal of similarities between Timothy and the Samaritan woman at the well. He was not a Samaritan, but nevertheless, Samaritans were half-breed Jews, half-breed Gentiles. Do you see the diversity in the church of Philippi? An Asian, a Greek, a Roman, a Jew, a half-breed Jew, and another Jew that's a doctor. You've got more diversity here than you could ever imagine. And just think for a moment what things would have been like in this church at Philippi. Think with me. Do you think that they had the same Background or different backgrounds? We don't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Listen, they, they are as different of individuals as you could ever imagine in your entire life. Do you think they had the same opinions upon matters when they came to Christ and began to assemble together? Or different opinions? You think that these individuals that made up the church at Philippi, do you think they had the same skin color? You think they had the same eye color? You think they had the same texture of hair? You think they all spoke the same language fluently? What you have is Romans particularly spoke Latin, Greeks spoke Greek, and Asians spoke Chinese or Mandarin. Let's just imagine for a minute that they're all attempting to learn the same language. You think they would have had the same accent? Think with me for just a minute. You think they'd have had all the same philosophies in life? Or of life? Or origins? Or anything of that nature? Think about this for a minute. Do you think that they had the same socioeconomic background. Lydia, a seller of purple, she was wealthy, would have put her at the upper class of society. The slave girl, she would have been at the absolute bottom of society's list. And then you've got the Philippian jailer who would have been a respectable middle class. You think that they all had the same views and philosophies about government and government's role or the redistribution of wealth? You think that they didn't have differences? Throughout their years, they had seen and been taught, whether it be about oligarchies or monarchies or aristocracies. They had heard about democracy, theocracy, and throughout the Roman Republic, they'd understood to a certain degree about a democratic republic. These individuals are well before Karl Marx or any Marxism, socialism, fascism, communism, but they probably knew something of capitalism, but what they knew of capitalism would have really been crony capitalism. You think they had all the same ideas, the same philosophies? You think they had everything in common amongst themselves in the first church at Philippi? No. 
These folks are as different amongst each other as you could ever imagine. Can you imagine that in the reality of them sitting down and having conversations amongst themselves, just the ones we know about, can you imagine the possibility of strife being between Roman and Greek as Rome would attempt to expand the empire and enslave Greeks? Can you imagine what it would have been like in their culture for a woman to have been more wealthy than this man? Can you imagine the strife that could have possibly been there amongst them? The contention, the arrogance by some, the brokenness by others, the baggage that each and every one of them carried to the table into the church? Can you imagine the remorse of some? Can you imagine how they felt, how they thought with such different backgrounds and opinions and thoughts and philosophies? The great question is, in the midst of all this diversity in the church that the Lord is building, the question is, in the midst of all this diversity, where are they going to find unity? Where do they find unity in the midst of all this diversity that would ultimately separate them all? That would divide them? Where would they find this unity? I'd ask you to look with me at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I want you to listen to how Paul begins his letter in writing to this Philippian church. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with joy. I bet he never forgot his converts. I'm not trying to idolize Paul but I think his heart's much deeper than mine. I think he remembered Lydia. I think he knew her. Remembered her household, her house, and how they took him in. I'm sure he remembered the slave girl. I'm confident that he remembered the Philippian jailer. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine making request for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Notice their fellowship is not in their economic status. Their fellowship, their unity is not found in an idea of politics or economics or in the color of their skin, or the texture of their hair, or the color of their eyes, or because they have certain hobbies that are alike. Their unity, their fellowship is not found in this. But in the midst of their diversity, we begin to see just a little bit of their unity. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And then Paul says this, being confident of this very thing, that he who begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Who started this work? The Lord started this work. And he's saying, I'm confident that as the Lord has opened your heart and opened your heart and opened your heart and you've responded with a confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, I'm confident that he who begun that work, he's going to see it through to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. I want you to look with me just a little bit farther now. In Philippians chapter 1, look at verse 27. 
Listen closely to these words of Paul. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, the way you live, let it be worthy. Let Christ and his gospel be the standard by which is the measuring stick for everything that you do. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In other words, as the church, the body of Christ, works toward the advancement of the gospel through evangelism and discipling those whom have been evangelized to, this is your ultimate goal. And you strive together, one spirit, one frame of mind, for the sake of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Now comes the therefore in chapter 2, which is connecting everything he just said to what he's about to say now. Therefore, therefore what? Being centered on the gospel of Christ. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any encouragement, if you can look at the gospel and find your encouragement, if there's any encouragement in Christ, or if any comfort in love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy in being like-minded. I'm going to tell you, this is a pastor's heart being poured out before a diverse congregation. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. If there's any affection and mercy. Let me ask you something. Does, does your spouse ever need mercy? You know, if, she, if, if your spouse meets all the conditions and you're supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ and Christ loves unconditionally, but your spouse never never makes a mistake and never needs any mercy, how are you ever going to learn unconditional love? How do you learn mercy if the person you're married to never needs mercy? Let me ask you this. As the body of Christ, does the people in the body ever need to distribute mercy to one another? Why? Wow. We, we got different thoughts. We got different opinions. We come from different backgrounds. We, we got different colors of skin. We got different stories that's led us to where we're at right now. We've been molded and shaped in different ways. We've got diverse backgrounds. We got diverse incomes. You ha he's saying here, if there's any mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Listen, when we came to Christ, outside of the gospel we just believed, we most likely had everything else wrong. And then he's telling us in Romans chapter 12, that I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, pleasing unto God, for this is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to the patterns of this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. From the point of your salvation comes the sanctification. And in that sanctification is the part of the renewing of your mind and coming into unity of the faith. He's saying this. Be like-minded. Having the same love. By what standard would we find love so that we all have the same love? The unconditional love that comes from Christ. Being of the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. If we had plenty of time, I'd get somebody up here. I'd have them pick that guitar up. I'd have them place their fingers at the, 
a chord of G and just let them start strumming. We go G and then to C and then to D and we just about sound like a honky tonk at that point. But but nevertheless, we'd strum G and C and D and and, and everybody go, wow, that's that's beautiful, that's nice. You know why it's nice? You know why it's beautiful? Because it's all in harmony. When he says, let everyone be in one accord, it literally means in harmony with one another. See, what would happen, we'd start drumming that, strumming the G and the C and the D, and we'd make this little song up, and, and then all of a sudden I'd come up here and I'd start taking the E string and I'd tune it way down while they kept playing. And then, and then I'd, take, I'd take maybe the A string and I'd, I'd tune it way up. I'm going to tell you something, everybody in here would go from, wow, that's beautiful, to oh my gosh. And you wouldn't have to do two strings. You just put one out. You get one out of harmony, and I'm telling you, the whole thing falls apart. This is the way the church is. He's calling for unity in the midst of diversity that we all be in one accord. Then he says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. You think like... Lydia was ambitious. You better bet she's ambitious. He's saying here, don't let anything be done not through ambition. No, it's okay to be ambitious. He says through selfish ambition or conceit. Listen to this. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Remember the diversity of the congregation he's saying this to. Upper class, middle class, lower class. Greek, Asian, Roman. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. You think that young slave girl needed help? You better bet she needed help. Where was she going to find it? It wasn't in Rome. It would have been in the church. Let me give you this before I move on into verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2. I made mention a little bit earlier about the battle at Philippi. This battle took place in 42 B.C. This is about two to, two to three generations right in that area before Philippians would have been written. They would have been descendants of that battle. Many of you may have either read books or read history or even watched movies that would have giving you some idea of the battle at Philippi. And maybe when I name off some of these names, you will uh, recognize some of them. The main characters in the battle of Philippi right after the assassination of Julius Caesar was Mark Antony, Octavius, Brutus, and Cassius. Several of them died in the battle of Philippi. That battle ended up expanding and strengthening the Roman Empire throughout Macedonia, completely taking over the chief city of Philippi. And when Rome conquered a city or a providence or a colony, their soldiers would go through the streets, knock on doors, and they would go and Everywhere they went, they would make the people in that providence or city bow their knee and confess that Caesar was Lord. I want you to read with me, starting at verse 5 of chapter 2 of Philippians. Now he's going to give us the great standard of which the church bases this unity that is found in the midst of diversity. 
Here's the standard. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and become in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You know how you find unity in the midst of such diversity? It's when people die to themselves and they have centered their life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And when they do so, they have no other choice but as a byproduct to humble themselves before the Lord, realizing that the ground is level at the cross and that they're all we're one in Christ. And then Paul goes on to say this as he reflects upon the humiliation of Jesus. Because now he goes from humiliation to exaltation. And he says this, Therefore God hath highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Listen, above my name, above your name, above whatever political party that somebody may hold to, above the name of whatever economic system by which someone may hold to, above whatever prejudice someone may have. He has the name that is above Caesar's name. And he says this, Therefore God hath highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What in the world did everybody in Philippi have in common? Everybody in Philippi, for two to three generations, had bowed their knee and confessed that Caesar was Lord. What did this diverse group of people assembling and meeting together in Philippi, what did this diverse church have in common? It's that they had bowed their knee and submitted themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and confessed Him as Lord. This is the great confession based upon the great revelation. This is the dawning of the church. This is how the church is built. This is the diversity of the church that the Lord is building. But this is also the unity that is found in the church itself. Paul said this in Galatians as I close. For there we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. As many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ. Then we find in Revelation chapter 5, 9. The great consummation of the Lord Jesus building his church. You have a whole host of people in heaven that are as diverse as they could be. And this is what it says. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'd ask you to stand with me this morning as we come to a close. I could have spent a lot of time this morning pointing out cultural distinctions and trying to make points 
in our culture, I, I think the Word of God can illuminate everyone's mind and heart to make those distinctions. I think that His Word can speak to us this morning at a local level, in a local congregation, yet at the same time give us an understanding of the church globally, worldwide. That it is a very diverse church. It's a church that the Lord Himself is building, and He's building it diverse. But its unity is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I'd ask you this morning, if you find yourself exalting yourself, if you find yourself in strife or in contention, I'd ask you to ask the Lord to help you deal with this, to remain in unity. There may be something that the Lord brings to your mind. I'd say the greatest thing that I deal with is pride in and of myself. I'm very well aware of it. But nevertheless, if we see ourselves in light of Scripture and under the commands of Paul this morning, we find ourselves in need of, of repentance of one particular area in our life. I'm going to tell you, you're more than welcome to pray this morning, spend as much time as you want to in this place in prayer. But by all means, I'd ask everyone to pray and seek the Lord as we're dismissed this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come before you again. I want to thank you once more for the life, death, and resurrection of your son Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that it is substitutionary. He's taken my place. And that payment that he has made is not only sufficient for my sins, but it is sufficient for the entire world's sins. So, Father, I ask you, Lord, to do the work that only you can do. Sanctify your church through the work of the Spirit. Bring continual unity and let none of us ever take for granted your grace. Father, I'm asking as you build unity among us that we continually be centered upon the gospel of your Son, evangelistic in our speech, and that we disciple not only reaching the nations but reaching our neighbor. Father, I ask you, Lord, to give us a heart that's conformed toward and to you, the heart of your Son. And Father, I ask you, Lord, to let your will be done throughout the remainder of this day. And if there be one among us that doesn't know you, I ask that your Spirit do only the work that he can do to draw them to repentance and faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Amen. You were dismissed. If you need to talk to somebody, you're more than welcome to talk to me. Or you can talk to any of the elders that are here.